Ah, welcome back. As you can see, the museum is closing, which means it's, cl it's clearly that time again. The time to open up the doors to the unseen. The doors to the museum no one else gets to see. The doors to the back halls, to the exhibits that are supposed to be off-limits to the public. Not because they are fragile or delicate, but because they are things that you might not otherwise believe. And because it is my job as curator of this special museum to guide you through them. So, let's get started, shall we? It's time we dredge up more fascinating facts and more hard-to-believe truths as we examine yet another strange exhibit of societal lore that must be decrypted. When Jules Verne wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870, one of the most important things he did was he rekindled in men and women of the 19th century a fascination with a world that had for several thousand years already captivated the attention of mariners, philosophers, writers, and many more who understood the impressive gravity that the ocean had on human society. To give an example, Apollonius of Rhodes, when writing his Argonautica, the epic poem which tells of Jason and the Argonauts and their pursuit of fleece in the 3rd century BC, tells of an encounter in this fictitious piece of two monsters encountered near the Straits of Messina. Scylla, who is mentioned again in Book 12 of Homer's Odyssey, the epic poem which details the arduous journeys and travels of the warrior king Odysseus, is described as appearing female, with twelve feet, six heads on long serpentine necks, each head then having razor-sharp teeth, while her waist was surrounded by six baying dogs. Ovid's Metamorphoses mentions Scylla a third time saying she was transformed to the state by Circe, a sea witch who also is mentioned in the Odyssey, a fascinating occurrence which should give us pause and make us wonder how this tied into the culture of ancient Greece at the time, if we consider that things like prophecy, sorcery, and astrology were all very closely tied to the gods and that many believed in those things because of that belief that fate and magic were tied to the gods, then we see how easy it was to believe in things like a woman who was transformed into a monstrous beast with, and this is important, shark-like teeth, six serpent necks, and wolf heads about her waist. We even can understand the effect such a story had on our ancient ancestors. These images, they invoke ideas of savagery, of ruthlessness, and of a predatory nature. Images which for generations have had strong ties to our traditional role in things as a prey species. The ancient Greeks probably heard these stories of Scylla and her counterpart Charybdis, the beast who sat at the other side of the strait, 
and who, according to these same accounts in which Scylla was mentioned, appeared to look like a whirlpool, but was actually a great beast that would suck ships down its maw before spitting out the remains when it was full. It is believed by modern scholars that Charybdis was based off a large whirlpool that exists near the Strait of Messina. Still, whether these creatures exist or do not exist is not the debate I am trying to discuss in the topic of this episode. The matter I am trying to breach is this. Together, Scylla and Charybdis complete a fascinating portrait of how ancient Greeks viewed the ocean. It was part of their daily life. They revered it to the point they dedicated two deities to it. Poseidon, ruler of the sea, and Oceanus, the titan of the oceans himself. They at the same time also feared the ocean. That is why they crafted stories such as these to warn any who dared traverse upon the sea that they would do well to be cautious of the cruel and savage predator the ocean could really be. And take note, the Greeks were not the only ones who were wary of this. The Nords, another ocean-faring civilization, also remained wary of the savagery of the seas, as they told stories of sea monsters like the Kraken, a giant tentacled sea beast said to drag mariners to the depths of the sea that was believed to be a myth until 1873, when the world's first giant squid was documented near Newfoundland a region which is well documented as being part of Viking territory when legends of the Kraken were originally told. So as you can see, in this case, their fears were not unfounded. They knew from what they witnessed to respect the oceans and its beasts, and in the same sense as the Greeks, passed down their stories so that their descendants would respect the ocean and its creatures in the same regard. The ocean, in conclusion, does not always evoke fear of creatures that are only in the imagination. Sometimes truth really is stranger than, than fiction, and the stories we tell are our mind's best attempt at trying to rationalize what we've witnessed. This is the thought I leave you with as our t tour concludes yet again. I hope you enjoyed not only hearing these fascinating stories, but also getting to experience the truth behind them. Be sure to come back next week when we take yet another tour, this time into what will be the darkest reaches of the human imagination, a place haunted by darkness, shadows, and by one of the most bone-chilling monsters in existence. The monster I speak of? Vampires. Hope to see you then.